Shabbat Shalom. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5 this week. Jumping into Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at faith, family, and fidelity. And I may throw some freaks in right at the end for you. But um, let's jump right into this chapter because there is a lot to take on today. Be ye therefore followers of Elohim as dear children and walk in love as Messiah also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to Elohim for a sweet smelling savor. What fitting words. Indisputable priestly language, isn't it? Right off the bat, when you look at that in light of what we've been learning about being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, indisputable priestly language right off of the front here. And this is how we're to walk in our relationship with Messiah through Yahuwah. I don't know how you can deny that the priesthood is functioning today and is active when you see in light of the language that is obviously being presented here. This sacrificial phraseology jumps right out at me. You see it throughout the apostolic scriptures, and it's always addressing the lives of the believers as they are hearing this message delivered to the nations. Now, of course, as we go back and we look at this language in the Bible, we find where its first mention is. And of course, that brings much weight to what I'm talking about, the priesthood being alive, functioning in the life of believers today. If you want to, with me, we can look at the Greek word for sacrifice here. It's the Greek word thusia. So we'd go back into the Septuagint and we'd say, well, where does this um, Greek word thusia, where does it appear? Because then that's going to be the Torah of first mention, which is going to give its definition that when it's used thereon forward, even into the apostolic scriptures, you'll always go back to its original meaning. What does this thusia sacrifice mean? Of course, now we go back into the Septuagint and we'd find that this word is first used, thusia, in the Septuagint referring to the Passover sacrifice. That Passover sacrifice that the blood was applied to the doorposts and the lintel and that gave you delivery out of Egypt, out of that pagan culture and you were delivered to the mountain where you would in maturity receive the commandments and instructions of Yahuwah and that would prepare you for holy, just, righteous living in a sick and twisted world full of Hittites, parasites and Jebusites. And that That's exactly the context of us as a priesthood in this world today. We're to be that light. We're to be covered by the blood of the Lamb so that we can now go in maturity to receive the commandments of the Father so that we can then 
function as priests in the nations, a nations full of sick and twisted individuals that need the very light and flavor of the salt that you and I have. So again, Paul uses this Greek word thusia, meaning sacrifice, and its first mention in the Torah, in the Septuagint, relates to the Passover sacrifice. Again, here Paul is using it with its prophetic fulfillment relating to the priestly family of Messiah. In fact, Psalm 40 verse 6 in the Septuagint, it is written, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me, whole burnt offering and sacrifice for sin thou didst not require. It's the body, the composition of Messiah that brings into fruition the priesthood for the nations. Very powerful start if we understand the language. Look at verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. It's not fitting for us. Paul is now naming prominent sins that were rampant within the Hellenistic world. You have to understand the world that he is addressing. The world that he is addressing, especially within the slave class. So these sexual sins were rampant within the slave the slave class, excuse me, within the Hellenistic world. It was centered around Hellenistic forms of pagan worship. So we're not even to talk of such things. Especially, and we can find that today. What you talk about, garbage in, garbage out, right? What do you talk about? Because especially it can lead to a kind of sin by proxy or voyeurism. But somebody just wants to hear the wicked things because they want to... It's kind of voyeuristic, isn't it? So no, we're not even to entertain those thoughts. Look at verse 4. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather give thanks. Have you ever laughed at something that you knew was inappropriate? Or maybe you didn't speak up and condemn something that somebody said when you know you should have done in your jobs, in the work environment. I know I have. That's what he's talking about. There's a time to remain silent, but then there's a time to speak up in protest. And so, no, no, that's unclean, and I don't want to hear that. And when everybody else is laughing at that joke, you're not laughing, taking that stand. But sometimes we want to be comfortable, and in that... There's an error, especially if we don't walk in the righteousness that he's called us to. Because when we behave like that, it grieves the Holy Spirit. How many of you have done that and then been convicted afterwards that you should have said something or you shouldn't have laughed, that you didn't stand up for righteousness when you had an opportunity to do so? Especially today with all these TV movies and the internet, we're in more danger today at falling into this pattern of sin in verse 3 and 4 than any other point in human history, especially with the way that the Luciferic Hollywood is deliberately laying a sprung trap before us all. 
before us all. For ye know that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Messiah and of Elohim. Whosoever, we know Messiah said, that whosoever even looketh on a woman with lust in his eyes after her, he hath committed adultery already with her in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, the master said, then pluck it out and cast it from thee. Again, we have to be careful what we think and to guard our very, very thoughts. Because thinking, talking, or watching movies which contain sexual sins can create can create an atmosphere where they're tolerated. And then that indirectly leads to their promotion within one's life. And that's how Hollywood works. 30 years ago, you would never hear the language or see the things that you, can, you see today. Even my wife and I just went recently to a movie and the trailers at the beginning, we were like, they were so full of action and explosives and crazy loud noises because people do not have an attention span. They need to be thrilled. They need explosions. It, it's it's so insane to me because it's not even real. I have an imagination. My imagination is far greater than any, any production set. Leave it to my imagination and it will not need to be literally laid out and then they go to the dirt, the ground, filth. We don't need that. So we really, as a community of believers, have to be on guard and set the thermostat in our houses of what we allow to come in and what we keep out. Because it's always a dirty mind that expresses itself in lewd conversation. It always is. And in the Hellenistic world, gross sexuality was directly involved in the worship of the deity. So is therefore coupled with idolatry and greed. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls in uh, manuscript 1QS 10.21, it is written, In my mouth shall be heard neither foolishness nor sinful deceit, neither fraud nor lies shall be discovered between my lips. Rather, the fruits of holiness will be upon mine tongue. Abominations will not be found therein. That's it. Amen and Selah. Look at verse 6. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of Elohim upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. Don't join a mob. Don't get involved. Walk the other way. Don't laugh at their jokes. You need to leave. Or as Paul says, flee. Get out and run. Don't be deceived by groundless arguments. That's why we spend so much time here 
reviewing and studying the word of Yahweh so that we're not caught up in groundless arguments, but we find our beliefs in the written word and the written word alone. Look at verse 8. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now ye are light in the master. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Ruach, the Spirit, is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the master. Bear good fruit. Love. Mercy, rachamin in the Hebrew. I love that word. Rachamin, compassion, healing. All these acts are promoted by the manifestation of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. And it's a tragedy today when when I deal with the youth and I'm around so many of the young people. And for me to witness so many youth attending churches that have played loose with Yahuwah's moral law. They've played so loose with it that now you have all these young girls that are using apps like Tinder and they're texting from church. And in fact, some of my staff have shown me texts that they've received from students while they were sitting in a church service on a Wednesday night or on a Sunday filled with F-bombs. And they're sitting in congregations. But the thing is, the pulpit has played loose with the moral law of Yahweh. They're not even teaching the Ten Commandments. So then how can the youth be told what sin is? They don't know anymore. So therefore, they've got no guide, no foundation. And you see the fruit of this. The fruit of this thinking, that's why it's so important that we return to the book of the covenant commandments from Genesis 1 and we go forward and we build this biblical foundation because it is so discouraging for me to see these so-called believers acting in a way that is just like the heathen. Just like the heathen. If you don't teach the law of God, then you're unable to teach the youth what sin is and what's not sin. That's what the Bible tells us. Which means you're actually preaching moral relativity from the pulpit. And you didn't even know that, but that's just the default. Because not only have you kicked the moral law out, but you've kicked... God out of the sanctuary. And now, that's exactly what you see. So the emphasis here of responsibility of the redeemed is paramount. We are responsible for our actions, and we are responsible to be mature in the things of Yah, in what we watch, in what we listen to, in what we speak, on what we are silent about, on what we protest, what we laugh about. Our very actions, especially in a world where there are texts and internet activity all of the time. And it is a lewd, lewd world. Let's look now 
Because as we progress further, this is talking about family, faith, and fidelity. So again, this is addressing the family unit. But all things, verse 13, that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. So the light and darkness language here, of course, it comes straight out of the Qumran literature of the day and it explodes upon the very pages of, of, of course, First John. Let me read First John to you because you see this light and darkness language which, which prevalent in the Qumran community now comes into the apostolic scriptures. First John 1 John 1.5 and this is the declaration which we have heard from him and we declare it unto you. That Yahweh is light, and in him there is no darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not have the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he also is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Yahushua Messiah, his son, cleanses us off all from sin. So having fellowship with each other is being in the light. Putting everything out in the light. Having that community in a world where people don't have connection and relationship because it's all electronic. You need to put yourself out there. Because otherwise... It can be you in the dark with the reflection of your device. And that is not community. That is not how we have fellowship with one another. Very important in today's world that we access each other. Verse 14. Wherefore he saith... Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead. This is exactly what you were talking about with your employee this week. Would you wake up? Awake us from the dead. But we have to be patient, because it is the Ruach that will awaken a person. Because it's Messiah that will give you light. I can try all I want, but at the end of the day, it's only Moshiach that can regenerate the person. Now, Paul uses, of course, the language of Isaiah's prophecies here to drive home his point that the fulfillment that Isaiah the prophet had been speaking about all of those centuries before, it is now coming into fruition. It's the return of the exiles, the beginning stages of healing toward the nations. And you and I, we are at the end stages Isaiah prophesied it. Paul was there at the beginning stages of it. And you and I are now the recipients of the end stages of the prophecies of Isaiah. Let's review a few of them because I think some of you sometimes get so lost in everything that's going on in this technological world that we lose perspective of the biblical framework of our lives. 
Paul was at the beginning of the thrust of this. You and I are at the close of it. Isaiah 9, 2. O people walking in darkness, behold a great light. Ye that dwell in the region and the shadow of death, a light shall shine upon you. And we know that that light, of course, he said that he is the light of the world. Isaiah 26 verse 19. The dead shall rise and that they that are in the tomb shall be raised. And they that are in the earth shall rejoice. For the dew from thee is healing to them. But the land of the ungodly shall perish. Isaiah 51 verse 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, that hast drunk at the hand of the master the cup of his fury. For thou hast drunk out and drained the cup of calamity, the cup of wrath. And today we are seeing the very dregs of that cup in Jerusalem being drained. It was filled at the time and now the very dregs are at the very bottom and you and I are at the close of this. This is a multi-layered prophecy, Isaiah 52, verse 1. Awake, awake, O Zion. Put on thy strength, O Zion, and thou put on the glory. Jerusalem, the holy city, there shall no more pass through thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Of course, we are at the dregs of this, the dregs of this. Isaiah 60 verse 1, Be enlightened, O be enlightened, O Jerusalem, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Master is risen upon thee. Behold, darkness, darkness shall cover the earth, and there shall be gross darkness upon the nations. But the Master shall appear upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and kings shall walk in thy light, and the nations in thy brightness. So verse 14 of our text was actually a very early first century hymn that was sung by the faithful as they would go into the waters of immersion. It was a hymn that was sung by the first century believers as they would descend into the waters of mikveh because we can see now that this is really emphasizing the new birth and faith the believer was embarking upon in Messiah. Look at verse 15. See then that ye walk circumspectly. Three things. Not as fools, one. But be wise, redeeming the time, two. Because the days are evil, therefore be not ye unwise, three. But understanding what the will of the Master is. Now, if this isn't a pro-Torah verse, then, then I don't know what is. Look, I mean, throughout Scripture, fools are depicted as those that depart from Yahweh's law. Throughout Scripture, fools are those that are depicted as those who depart from Yahweh's law, from his teaching and his commandments. Those that are wise are simply those 
that obey his commandments. So in context, keep the commandments. Redeeming the time, well, look at it. Redeeming the time goes back to the tents of Jacob. The tents of Jacob were known as tents of study, whereas the house of Esau squandered time, did he not? So there's this juxtaposition between Esau and Jacob, because we see that Jacob redeemed the time and the tents of study, understanding Yahweh's commandment, whereas Esau was the one that squandered time, squandered the birthright, the inheritance on carnality. And in fact, that's what this whole chapter is all about. Admonishing one not to fall into carnality. And the wisdom... Because you don't want to be unwise. So what is wisdom? Well, the wisdom literature of the Bible is all about being obedient to Yahweh's Torah and reaping the blessings. So if you look at the phraseology here and you connect it back to the Bible, this is about the most pro-Torah verse that you can see. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And the wisdom of Yahweh was always for the covenant community of priestly kingdom walking. Look at verse 18. And do not be drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Ruach, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the master. So verse 19 hints back the idea that 14, verse 14, was of course a spiritual mikvah hymn for the first century believers. So it's that hint back. And drunkennesses and excesses and immorality, these were all part of the darkness that enshrouded the Hellenistic culture and the pagan world. Think of their temples and all of that Hellenistic idolatry that was going on. In particular, what Paul is addressing here to his audience in Ephesus is the kind of drinking that would happen down on the river Tiber. Well, what would happen? On a Sunday morning, Sunday, the day of the sun, the first day of the week, at sunrise, they would descend down to the banks of the river Tiber, just outside of Rome. And what they would do is they would sacrifice a child. They would take one of the wafer discs and dip it in the blood of the child. And they would hold up the host to the worship of the sun. And they would have a common union. Of course, this is where the sun disc wafer and the communion on Sunday comes from. Of course, this was an ancient pagan ritual. And it was something that had been going on. The worship of the Roman deity Dionysus or Bacchus. And again, this was the common union union of drunkenness, orgy, and child sacrifice. And this was the custom of wearing the floral wreath that symbolized the worship of the deity and the burying of the flesh, the devilish origins of today's Sunday communion and wreath hanging that you see all about you. But people don't know because it's called syncretism where you take the pagan customs and you mix them in with the Bible and it becomes a cup of drunkenness. And Yahuwah is saying, my people, 
come out from amongst us so that you do not partake of that cup of which is a mixture. And again, Antiochus Epiphanes forced the Jews to worship in this very way. In fact, I'll read to you from 2 Maccabees 6, verse 3. The evil worsened, and it made it difficult and unbearable for all. The temple was profaned by the orgies of the pagans who went there to have a good time with prostitutes and had intercourse in the sacred enclosures. And besides, they brought into the temple things not permitted by the Torah. The altar was laden with unclean victims prohibited by the Torah. It was no longer allowed to celebrate the Sabbath or observe the customs of our ancestors or even to declare oneself a Jew. But on the contrary, they were led by bitter necessity to celebrate the king's birthday with a monthly sacrifice. And when the feast of Dionysus or Bacchus came, they were also forced to follow Dionysus, the procession, and wear the floral wreaths. And again, as we come into this time of Christmas, the Mass of Christ and the hanging of wreaths, you have to understand this was huge within the Mithraic Roman religion and the worship of Dionysus and Bacchus down on the river Tiber. It's syncretism and it has infiltrated churchianity, which is not the true faith that was once delivered to the saints. It's the 20th and 21st century counterfeit that is, of course, very popular in this nation. Very popular. Look at verse 20. Giving thanks always for all things unto Elohim and the Father in the name of our Master, Yahushua Messiah, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of Elohim. Give thanks to the Creator because the Creator is evidence of the true faith of the believer by giving thanks to Him. Look at verse 22. Now we're digging into the family, husbands, wives, and the relationship that is then in the next chapter going to go down to the children. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. Can anybody tell me if their translation has anything different in verse 22? Be subject. Be subject. Place yourselves. Unto your own husbands, does it say? Just place yourself under, under. Okay, anybody else? In the earliest manuscripts, we'll, I'll come into that a little later, but let me read the whole, the whole traditional text for you. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the master. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Moshiach is the head of the assembly. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the assembly is subject unto Mashiach, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Mashiach also loved the assembly, and he gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious assembly, not having spot or wrinkle 
or any such thing, but that he should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. Now, how many of us put our arms around our wives and read the word to them and pray for them? Because this is what he's talking about. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the master of the assembly. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. Besar echad in the Hebrew, one flesh. Now, as I started this, verse 22, none of your translations had it, but there is actually an omission in the very earliest writings of the verb to be subject. doesn't appear in the very earliest manuscripts. To be subject. Only later did copyists add the verb believing that it should be supplied based upon the context. But should it? Was that really at the forefront, forefront of Paul's mind here? Is that really what Paul was talking about? I don't believe so. So later on, yes, a copyist supplied the verb, thinking that, well, the context justified it. But that isn't a good enough reason for me, especially in light of what he's doing here in this chapter with the Ephesians. So let's go into this because I do believe it's important because we want healthy, familiar life in the family functioning properly. Paul's getting his foundational doctrine here. This isn't Hellenistic theology. This is Torah-based theology. The Torah, the prophets, and the writings going forward into the apostolic scriptures. Paul is getting his foundational doctrine of family from the very Torah itself. Specifically, the Ten Commandments, where a man is to lead his family in six, can we say six? Six foundational truths which will in turn cultivate a family life of mutual submission. Number one, the husband is to guard the family home from the introduction of idols and graven images. Today, be careful of your television sets. And what you bring back from holidays and vacations. Number two, the husband is to teach the holy tongue and the revering of Yahweh's sacred name. Number three, the husband is to lead the family in Sabbath observance. Number four, the husband is to set a culture of honor in regard to anger, violence, thievery, and lying. And number five, the husband is to teach not to indebt oneself because to indebt oneself is covetousness. And number six, the husband is to 
What? Have the children educated when they sit in the house, when they walk by the way, when they lie down and when they rise up. The responsibility of educating children is a family responsibility. It is not the responsibility of the state. This is what Paul is talking about here. This is the Pauline mind as he is expressing, of course, the commandments to the community in Ephesus. Paul's foundational, please hear me on this, Paul's foundational view of family is derived from the Ten Commandments. It draws a line in the sand to the importance of doing Bible things Bible ways. It's that simple. Things like keeping the Sabbath and avoiding pagan holidays gain real importance here, don't they? Mutual submission was something foreign to the Greco-Roman world. Have you ever read Aristotle? Have you ever read Plato? If you want to see how they viewed women, read Aristotle and Plato. It's pretty plain. Women were to be put under boot in the Greco-Roman Hellenistic culture. Homosexuality was rampant. Zeus had originally created women to be a curse to men. So this was rampant within the Greco-Roman culture. But this is not Paul's mind. This is not Paul's mind. He is fighting against this. Fighting against this. In fact, I, um, I just have to spend some serious time here because I feel that there has been so much that has been done wrong that we have to undo it and present the truth to be able to get right. So there's four common views on this whole section of Scripture from verse 22 on. And I want want to talk about these views because it is important that we even identify the four common views that are prevalent in today's world. Number one, we've got biblical... I lost my place. Where am I? Am I in verse 31? 22, sorry, hang on, 22. So I was getting so excited here. Verse 22, thank you. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the master, for the husband is the head of the wife. So, thank you. Again, I I get so fired up, then all of a sudden I lost my steam. We look and we see in verse 22, let me recapture this, again, the submission clause was actually not in the first century manuscripts. The verb was supplied later by a copyist, believing that the context demanded it. But the context is the Ten Commandments and family health. I don't believe we need to supply a verb that isn't in the text in the first place. That's how we begin. And now we look at the four main views of verse 22 to verse um, 31. And the first one is the egalitarianism view. Biblical egalitarianism. 
And that is the belief that all people are equal before Yahweh in Messiah and that all people have equal responsibility to use their gifts and walk in their calling. And that they're all called, regardless of race, sex, or gender, they are called to all roles, all ministries, without regard to class, gender, or race. This is what I would agree with, and it is biblical egalitarianism. Number two, Christian feminism. Now, Christian feminists are rampant. And they believe in the search for a feminine or gender transcendent divine. Beyond gender. And often draw on the teachings of other Eastern religions and ideologies for the base and not the Bible. I do not agree with Christian feminism. Number three, complementarianism. Men and women in this idea have different but complementary roles and responsibilities. These separate roles bar women from specific functions of ministry, but even though they are barred from certain roles and ministries, these women are still equal in moral value and hold equal status, but headship roles go expressly to men and only men, and women's roles are there as only a support. That is complementarianism, and I don't agree with that. And finally, number four, we have biblical patriarchy. Of course, the father here is head of the home, responsible for the conduct of his family. Male leadership in the home carries over, of course, into the congregation. Only men, and only men, and I mean only men, are permitted to hold any ruling office in the assemblies, and women should not be civil leaders, and they shouldn't have careers outside of the home That, of course, is biblical patriarchy. These are the four common views of these verses 22 through 31. But what clues, because I've given you my opinion, but what clues can we find within the text that will give us the right biblical response? That's important. I've given you my view, what I agree with, which was number one. And that's great. Maybe you agree with that. Or maybe you're a Christian feminist. Or maybe you are a patriarchal clan member. So it's not just what I agree with. Let's see what the Bible's response is. Because one of these views, I think, the Bible is going to come and tell us. Let's look at verse 23 for our first clue. I love to go back to the Septuagint. Because those of you that are familiar with the apostolic scriptures, when the apostles quoted the Old Testament, they were quoting the Hebrew that was used to translate, that the Septuagint translated from that Hebrew. They weren't using the Masoretic text. They're using a Hebrew that is far and long gone that we don't have in circulation anymore. The Hebrew that we have today is the Masoretic text. 
But the Septuagint pulled from Hebrew scrolls way, way before that. So when the apostles were quoting the Old Testament, the Tanakh, they were using the Hebrew from which the Septuagint was translated. So verse 23, For the husband is, in the Greek, the kafale, the kafale of the wife. We're going to study this Greek word kafale because this is going to give us the key to how women and men are to interact together and the role of the woman, the wife to the husband. And it's all based upon us understanding this Greek word kafale, which was used in the Septuagint Oftentimes, and we're going to go back and track this, because the Septuagint usage of the word kephale would be translated as, listen, the husband is the nephesh, the soul or source of the wife. The husband is the soul, the source of the wife. Because what we're going to find out is that the soul, if we remember the teachings from Sukkot, the soul is there to aid the flesh. And where did woman come from? Man's flesh. So woman is represented by the flesh here because she came from man's flesh. And if man's relationship to the woman is that he's the soul then the soul's purpose to the flesh is to lead the flesh to the what? Ruach, spirit. So the soul needs to be in subjection to the spirit so that it can lead the flesh into subjection of the spirit. That is the role, mutual submission unto the Holy Spirit. We're going to see this now play out with the Greek word kephale because this is now going to take us to source language within the Septuagint. This is super powerful if you'll be able to stick with me. Okay, because in a disordered, listen, in a disordered individual, the soul is running the show. The soul's directing everything. That's a soulish, carnal believer. A soulish believer. But it's not supposed to be that way. The soul is supposed to be reliant and in submission to the spirit, the head, which is Messiah. So too... With the male and female in marriage, the husband as soul of the woman is to be directed by the Holy Spirit and is the source of her, meaning woman came from his rib. He's the source, so she's really from his own body, his own flesh, so he should love her as his own body. Didn't Paul just say that? And they both should be mutually submitted in partnership to the Holy Spirit. If Paul wanted to use head, as in, man is the head of the woman. If he wanted to use head, as in, man is the head of the woman, the ruler, he would not have used the Greek word kephale. He would have used the Greek word arche, arche. Now, this is very important for us to understand. 
because kefale, which he did use, its origins within the Septuagint are source language. Source language. Not like sauce you put on, it's my, my accent. Not like tomato sauce, but the source, the, the source of the river. Okay, just want to make sure, because some people are looking like, what? Oh, so- you bit of a saucy git, aren't you? Bit saucy up there. If he had wanted to be, he's the head of you, he would have used the Greek word arche, which means ruler. Now, arche, the Greek word arche, which does mean the head, the ruler, is found in Luke chapter 12, verse 11. Now, let's look at the language and see. And when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto the magistrates, the arche, the heads, those in charge, and the powers, take ye no thought how or what ye shall answer or what ye shall say. Kephale is absent from Luke chapter 12 verse 11 because this is not source language. This is headship language and a different Greek word is used, arche. Very clear. Does that make sense? I love the Bible answering the Bible. Because you can just dismiss all of this nonsense by just spending the time in the language and the text. Now, kephali, on the other hand, in the Septuagint, is translated from the Hebrew word rosh. Rosh, which is head. But the Hebrew word rosh and nefesh are both used and translated into kephale. So soul, kephale, nefesh, and rosh, synonymous within the Septuagint. And all of this, again, is source and soul language. So kephale is source and soul language. And Arche is leadership and headship language. And Paul used the source language. You have to ask yourself why the Septuagint translators most of the time chose not to use Kephale when the Hebrew word Rosh is found within leadership and rulership language. They use Arche. Rosh, they translate into the Greek word arche when there's leadership language. But when there's soul language or source language, they translate rosh into kephale. This is huge. This is huge. An example of leadership language is Numbers chapter 30 verse 1, where rosh is translated into arche. Conversely, conversely, when Rosh is translated into Kafale, which is source and soul language, you'd go to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 12 and 13, where Israel is told that Israel is the head and not the tail. The Kafale and not the tail. Because Kafale here it means Israel is going to do what? She's going to lend to many nations, meaning she's going to be the source of their blessings. Oh, I just, this stuff just makes me just on fire for everything, Yah. 
I mean, it just is so empowering. I used to sit there. You've got to understand, I always do. I told my wife this today. I said, honey, I was born to serve Yahweh. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, from the moment I was born again, 24 years old, I knew that I was, I was to serve him. And it, and it didn't take but two weeks before he put me to work. I was born into this. I was chosen and born into this. But I can't tell you, because this has always been stirring within me since the moment I was converted. I can't tell you how many years I sat under teachers. And I'd go to mission trips and I'd go to elders retreats and I'd sit and there'd be pastors from California and Arizona, from all over the nation. I'd sit and I was, you know, 24 and they were maybe 35 and I'd look up to them and I'd be, how could they teach like this? But I always felt that I was beholden to their doctrine. And I thought, well, how can I, how do I learn this myself? Do I have to go to seminary? And I really at one point was going to go to seminary in Canada. I really did think about it with the pastor from Calvary Chapel. We were going to go together because I started to express my frustrations. And he had some frustrations in his learning too. So we thought the solution was seminary. Because I thought, how do I not be beholden upon men? And now, look at us. It's simple. It's right here within the language of the Bible. We are no longer beholden upon. My opinion was number one. But you may disagree with me because maybe your opinion is number four and you think the woman should be under your boot. I don't know. Let's look at the language. But already you're seeing, I'm afraid, that arche is not in the text here. Kafale, which is more in line with opinion number one, is starting to show its weight, isn't it? So hopefully somebody who was patriarchal would now be swayed by the weight of Scripture, not my opinion. Freedom! I have been taught how to do this through literally... Years and years of isolation. Of not having anybody. Not having a father to teach me. But the father. And I have to now know that that was all for a purpose. Because finally I am equipped to help others. So that you're not beholden upon me. But we can work together and then just get super excited at the revelation of the Bible. And that's what I hope to, I hope that we can do more and more and more. Let's continue on. Sorry, I keep going off on tangents here. Again, Deuteronomy 28 verse 12 in the Septuagint. When Israel is the head, not the tail. Again, kafale is used there in the Septuagint because she is going to be lending to many nations and going to be the source of their blessings. There you go. Having a husband as the source of the wife is confirmed with the fact that husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. Of course, the analogy being Eve came from Adam's body, so the husband should also think of his own wife as originating from himself. Any subordination of the wife surely came after the fall, right? 
So then surely that status should be reversed by the work of Messiah. In fact, Paul already said that in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. Proverbs 31, which we love to pray every Sabbath, read it. It depicts a husband and wife in a business partnership together, working together for the mutual benefit of the family home, the whole. The view that the man is the head, the boss of the woman, is actually a very pagan Hellenistic view that crept into the early church. It's not biblical whatsoever. Now you're listening to a man that spent over a decade in the messianic movement. And in the messianic movement, they say that they hate everything Greco-Roman, but they've in fact adopted this greco-roman philosophy and theology into their very belief system because the irony is the messianic movement that claims to hate anything from a greco mindset has adopted a phrase that comes directly out of aristotelian philosophy and to quote our aristotle directly The head of the household rules over both women and children. This is from Politics 33. The head of the household rules over both women and children. How many in the Messianic movement, those of you that have been in the Messianic movement, have heard the phrase, well, I'm head of the household? head of the household. I heard that phrase thrown around all the time. Do you realize that phrase is not found anywhere in the Bible? It doesn't exist in the Bible. It comes straight out of Aristotelian philosophy. Yet it's thrown around in the Hebrew roots movement like candy. The Greek there for head of the household would be kafale oikos. Kafale oikos. And like I said, doesn't exist within the scripture. But it's something that the Hebrew Roots movement has adopted straight out of Hellenism. In the Messianic movement, I witness more my wife too, we witness more brow-beaten and downtrodden women suffering under the weight of their husband's religious doctrine and religious garb, carrying the weight of the whole household. Whilst what what did their husbands do? They sat in the gates talking Torah to all the elders while their wives were struggling under the weight of the new doctrine and all of the household responsibilities that the men were putting onto them. They weren't demonstrating the love, the kindness, the compassion that the Torah truly commands. They were just demonstrating the doctrines and the tyranny and their headship that the Bible doesn't communicate. It comes straight from Aristotelian philosophy. We actually went to a congregation one time with a family where the husband and wife are now serving 25 years in federal prison. This was an orthodox family. 
that were convicted of beating their children with wood and pipes. With timber and pipes. And they're both in federal prison. And these were highly orthodox believers. Downtrodden children. Downtrodden wife. With a tyrannical religious husband who had the longest seats, the longest beard, and was the most Hebrew intellect out there. What is that? And that's not just one family. We have seen it time and time and time again. And it's so sad because the healing that needs to come, it comes from getting your house in biblical order and it doesn't come from a Hellenistic worldview. Where does this worldview come from? It comes from the Babylonian Talmud and it comes from the Hellenistic world. Just look at the fight over the women at the wall. They just want to go to the wall and pray for crying out loud. And it is a political flashpoint within the Zionistic state. So much so that the president, the prime minister, goes back on his word. They just want to pray at the hotel. Look at that. It just shows you. Where does all this come, to, come from? It comes from Babylonian and Hellenistic culture. Judaism's daily prayer of blessing is thus. Praise be thou, O Lord, who did not make us me a woman. That's Judaism's daily prayer that a man prays for blessing. Paul's word in Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 was combating this kind of Babylonian, Talmudic and Hellenistic philosophy that was infiltrating their congregations from the Judaic and Hellenistic culture. You have to understand this. You have to understand this. Just look at today's news for crying out loud. It's full of stories of fake Ashkenazi Jews, sexual abuse of women. We've got Matt Lauer now to Harvey Weinstein. But when Talmudic Judaism legitimizes the abuse of women and children, what do you expect? What do you expect? It's a Talmudic rape culture. That's what it is. And it's part of the Masonic Jewish, can you say, satanic communist program to pathologize heterosexuality and to make homosexuality the healthy norm. That's what it is. They're trying to make homosexuality the healthy norm. Ultimately... The family will become obsolete. The state will take over reproduction and socialization to bring about their solution. And what is their solution? Well, it's right before our eyes. Changing the fundamental basis of society with regard to gender, sexuality and power. That is their solution. Institutions such as law, religion, and the educational system are under attack every day as we speak. They're being reconstructed through extensive action by the state. 
And all of this abuse and all of this scandal is all part of their manufactured system to bring about this new, new way of dealing with family and human interaction together. Because it's laying the groundwork. If you don't think that they're laying the groundwork, but you're asking, well, what are they laying the groundwork for? Deconstructing the family and reproduction for the introduction of AI technology. That's what they're trying to do. They are laying the groundwork for bringing in the artificial intelligence technology because this is what it's all about. The end goal of criminalization, criminalization of the family and reproduction within humanity outside of AI guardianship. What do you mean? Humanity, you cannot be trusted with your interaction with one another. Your interaction within the reproductive and family cycle needs to come under AI guardianship for the well-being of humanity. These AI technologies are for the good of humanity. They are our guardians. You cannot be trusted. Look at you. Look what you've done to one another. Don't you see that? They're going to be the saviors of humanity. They're laying the groundwork right before you and it comes right out of this occult, luciferic, Babylonian system. Because you know what? The Talmud has been teaching the abuse of women and children for thousands and thousands of years. Years. And there you have it. That's their solution. The state taking over reproduction and socialization to bring about their solution. AI guardianship because man cannot be trusted with his interaction with one another. The Talmud's endorsement of sexual abuse, for those of you that like to research, is in Sanhedrin 55b, Sanhedrin 69b, Yebamoth 57, and Yebamoth 60b. I will not read it to you. It is disgusting. But those of you that do want to check me on what I'm saying here, that I'm not being anti-Shemitic, I am just giving you the facts. So many Americans, they just just don't realize that they're unwitting slaves of the central banking cartel who use Zionism as their instrument. Just like communism, Zionism is part of the occult and Freemasonry. It's Kabbalism. It's Satanism. People need to awake to the fact that the state of Israel is a Rothschild colony. It's just a Rothschild colony. It's international. It's transnational. It's an insurgent entity which knows no borders. And they're the ones bringing forth this AI technology in 
combination with the Saudis because they work together. Because this is what you're seeing today. And of course, now the sacrificial lemmings are the ones in the news that haven't delivered what they promised that they were delivered. They haven't delivered the amount of gross immorality, pornography, and filth that they said they would in the timing that they said they would. They haven't done what they said that they would do. Matt Lauer has gone, Harvey Weinstein, because from, the, from 100 years ago, what you're finding, again, all of this filth, all this propagation of filth, this is nothing other than what the Bolsheviks were doing in 1920s and 1930s Europe. And again, it had to be stamped out because, again, if you can undermine the family, sexuality, humanity's interaction with one another, then guess what? You can bring them into a slave class. And now, because mankind cannot be trusted with its interaction with one another in the workplace, in the family, again, you need this AI guardianship for man to truly prevail. And that's what's going to be coming down the pike. They're preparing and laying the groundwork if you have the eyes to see. We really need to be aware. We truly do. We truly do. These are very perilous times that we live in. Don't think that all of this that's come up in the news is just coming out of nowhere. No, it is deliberate and it is laying the groundwork. Look at Bitcoin right now. What are we, 16, 16 to 19,000? We're over 200%, 200% increase. This is ridiculous. I opened a Bitcoin account when Bitcoin was at $700. insanity and I thought well that's kind of high you know because it was at 400 the month before and now we're at 16 I mean this is all a fabrication and they can literally pull the plug on it so this is high this is all part of trying to get people into this to get you over into this world that they then can pull the plug off and it'll all collapse all collapse and then you know AI technology so again, we have to prepared, be prepared Excuse me for this new realm. And it's coming very, very quickly. It truly is. It truly is. It's again laying that groundwork. But Paul is admonishing us. The family, the family, the family, the power is always in the tribal clan of righteousness and holiness. Keeping your family close. Loving and honoring and raising your family up on the Ten Commandments and righteousness in this sick and twisted world. When they are hanging wreaths on the door, you should be tearing them down. Not destructing other people's property. I would never suggest that. But you know what I'm saying. Again, very, very important that we understand the world that we live in. People are beginning to forget TPing people's homes. Let's just go ripping wreaths off the doors. That could be kind of a fun thing, couldn't it? All right. Verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Messiah and the assembly. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. 
This is about mutual submission before Yahweh. Because mutual submission before Yahweh, it creates a beautiful atmosphere of trust. It creates an atmosphere of honor where a wife would then desire to submit to a trusting husband because that husband is acting like her savior. He's acting like her protector. He's looking out for her well-being. He's there for her defense. All because he's following Yahusha's example. That's what we want. By treating his wife as his own body and the wife and family responding in like kind, a third entity is created. A couple. A family. A priestly tribe. And that is what the New World Order cannot stand. They are terrified of the family the priestly tribe, because that is an insurgency against their wicked agenda. Divide and conquer. But we say, no, bring in the family. Come into community. Join the congregation and grow together because we are moving more into an artificial world, whether it's the financial, the Bitcoin, or whether it is, again, laying the groundwork for Sophie and this AI technology, which is directly with the Saudis and, of course, those in the Bolshevik state. So, again, we need to wake up as these things are happening right before us, but we need to have the eyes to see. This isn't just some little cleansing of uh, a few men that have touched women. No, this is intentional. They have not delivered on what the globalists wanted them to deliver. So they are pushing them out because they are bringing in the heavy hitters now to get the foundation for the move to AI guardianship over family and reproduction. So, Abba, we ask that you would truly, in these days, Abba, as there is a refining process going on, that, Abba, I thank you that you have given us the wisdom of your word, that we can truly see that the husband is the source, the source of the woman, and that together, Abba, when we are walking in unity under the headship of Messiah, that that anointing flows right down to the children. Abba, guard us that we may be a priestly clan, a priestly tribe of righteousness in this day, that we would be, Abba, a shield and a buckler and go forth and speak righteousness to a sick and twisted world. Guard us and protect us, and we thank you for the safety and security that comes within your defense, for you are the shield of Abraham, Magan Avraham. Amen, and be blessed.